Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse recent reports from Bakhmut, update on the latest news from the Pentagon leaks, and our colleague Stephen Edgington interviews key members of the Polish military and politicians to understand the rapid Polish rearmament. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday. The 14th of April, one year and 49 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, senior technology reporter Gareth Caulfield, and The Telegraph's video comment editor, Stephen Edgington. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. Yeah, hi David, hi everyone. It's, uh, it's a pretty busy day, lots lots to get through, so let's go straight in. Let's go to Bakhmut in the Donbass, eastern part of the country. So Russia is reporting, saying it's cut off the last road into Bakhmut, preventing Ukrainian troops from escaping or being reinforced, in their words. The um, defence ministry in Moscow said its soldiers were, quote, blocking the transfer of the Ukrainian army reinforcements to the city and the possibility of retreat for enemy units, unquote. Now, uh, they also say Wagner troops are moving through the city, which we, we think is, is accurate. We think that that's been reported for a while, quite, quite how far and in what numbers, we're not sure, but we think they are slowly moving through the city, west of the river now. Now, this claim that they have closed the road was first circulated by the separatist authorities in Donetsk and the advisor to the Russia appointed head of Donetsk region, a guy called Jan Gargin. He said the last road out of the city was, quote, impossible to drive on, unquote, as Russian artillery was, quote, covering it almost entirely, unquote. Now, I'm specific about that. I'll come back to that in a minute, why I why I put those bits uh, specifically in quotes there. Now, it's thought New York Times are saying they were in the city earlier in the week. They're reporting that Ukrainian troops are defending a small corner of the city, about 20 blocks 20 blocks wide. They were saying earlier in the week, or they visited earlier in the week, and they say that as of that time, the road was passable, allowing resupply and evacuation 
of the unit. And Sergei Chervati, who's the spokesperson for Ukraine's forces in the eastern region, he said yesterday the army was still able to deliver foodstuffs, ammunition, medicines, all that is necessary, and also to evacuate our wounded. Sorry, that last bit was a quote. Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's the head of the, the Wagner mercenary group, he also contradicted the defence ministry and said that the that, that last raid out to the west was still passable. He said, quote, the harshest bloody battles are still ongoing, so it is too early to speak about a full encirclement of Bakhmut, um, unquote. And then he, he said that his forces control about 80% of the city, which, you know, high, depending on where you draw the... The city limits, you know, that may or may not be be accurate. I mean, Ukraine, they they have said Ukrainian Ministry of Defense has denied the report that the road is is now closed, but admitted the situation in Bakhmut was, quote, difficult, which, you know, if they've learned nothing from the Brits, it's understatement. So there you go. They're saying the situation is is difficult. Now, this this road to the west, there were t- there's one to the west and one to the northwest. We think the northwest was cut some time ago. The road to the west has been under intense strain now for for quite a number of months. This idea that it is that it has been cut would mean that the that the Ukrainian troops still in the city were were cut off, obviously. But there's a big difference here between what the uh, what Jan Gargin, who's the who's the advisor to the Russian appointed head of Donetsk region, when he said it's impossible to drive on. Okay, fine. It may it well. Okay, impossible is as a one hundred percent word, but you know that doesn't mean that they own it. And then when he when he then goes on to say Russian artillery is covering it almost entirely. Now again, that doesn't mean that you that you hold the ground. Now it is extremely difficult to do. I, I grant you, but if you can remove yourself from the battlefield visually, thermally, electromagnetically, you know, then you can still move around if the place is not actually under control of the. Of the enemy. I remember when I was when I used to play with tanks. Um, I don't know if Hamish is in the room today, but you know, when he took me through my tactics course, I don't think I did very well. But you know, if we were told to prove a route, as in show me that that road is clear of the enemy, or show me that that road is still passable, I mean, you've got to be on it. You can't you can't be a hundred meters away with some strong binoculars looking at it. You can't fly a drone over it. You can't do it from aerial other aerial assets or other reports from, from ground forces. You've got to stick a tank on that road and drive it up it to say, yep, you can still drive down that road. So saying it's impossible to drive on and the artillery is covering it almost entirely is not the same as saying that that route is closed to Ukraine. Now, I don't know. I genuinely don't know if it's open, open or not. Some people say that I put too rosy a glow on this and try and put it in favour of, of the Ukrainian side. I mean, I make no bones about wanting Ukraine to, to prevail in this war, but um, I'm not going to say, ha, they're, they're talking rubbish. It's clearly still in Ukrainian hands. We just dip, simply do not know. But you've just got to look at these things with... with, with uh, same with all these intelligence leaks. You've got, to, you've got to ask yourself questions. And what does it mean? What are they saying? Why are they saying it? So on and so forth. I remember a, a commander we were talking about... We are talking about knowing knowing something the ground truth as it as it's called and a and a senior commander once said to me look don't don't tell me what times the sentries are going around the base don't tell me what the route the sentries take around the place don't tell me when you expect them around the around the place you know you've got to smell the piss on the tree you've got to be there and tell me where these people are so you see them with your own eyes you know the route they're taking there's nothing to nothing to substitute ground truth by being there and reporting what you see and what you experience so we don't know exactly what's happening in Bakhmut. I, I take it with a slight pinch of salt that that, that road is, is no longer open. If the best they can come up with is saying it is covered by artillery almost entirely. I mean, you know, very dangerous, but things can still 
get through. Um, I've got some other updates, but I'll take a little pause there because I've been speaking for quite a while and just to see if you want to come back on anything there, David. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thanks, Tom. I, I guess my sort of, if, if you were to try and boil down your thoughts on the battle for Bakhmut, we, we, you know, it's been going on for months and months and months now. We've had quite a few false reports over the past six weeks of Russian sources saying things like, well, we've captured this, we've captured this, the city is about to fall. It, it still hasn't. How do you see the, the shape of the fighting there? Do, do you think you can discern where we might be in a week or two weeks? Or is it still, is the fog of war for you still too thick? Well, I mean, there, there's huge fog of war, i.e. we don't know exactly who's where and, and what the progress is each day. But we can take a step back and look at this and say that this city of very limited strategic and operational value, i.e. doesn't really go anywhere. It's not a major rail hub. It, it's, a, it's a piece of ground. You clearly want to take that, whichever side you're on. But it's not in and of itself hugely significant. It has been fought over for months at great cost to both sides. And the idea seems to be that, that that Russia had chosen to fight on this ground, either for, for the internal machinations between the Wagner Group and the Russian MOD, or for, for whatever reason to try and to try and have some sort of victory at the year-long anniversary, maybe now on the May the 9th Victory Day Parade, traditional Victory Day Parade in Russia. So we don't know quite why Russia invested so much in this area, but they were, they've lost a huge amount of personnel and, and equipment. And it seemed to be, and this was backed up by reporting in recent weeks, actually, from, from the Ukrainian senior military and political figures, that they were content to fight for it as well and reinforce it because it was comparatively costing Russia dear. And they wanted, the big thing here is is not so much the ground, or, or rather Russia seemed to be fighting for the ground, and Ukraine seemed to be fighting for the benefit to the relative strength that they were achieving by it, i.e. the figure of about nine to one. So for every nine Russians killed, there was one Ukrainian killed. Now, that's a brutal calculation, but that's what military commanders have to do. How much is that objective worth to me in terms of blood? Literally, that's the, these thoughts are, are discussed. And you know, How many people am I going to put into that fight and potentially lose for the purpose that I want to get out of it? And up till now, it, it's, it's obvious that Ukraine have said, well, it's still in their, it's in their interest to keep fighting for it, to wear down the Russian forces in advance of any potential counteroffensive, or or just to uh, just to push the Russians Russians back. Now the question is, at what point? Because Ukraine is a, is a smaller force, Ukraine has a smaller force. So at what point do they go from losing muscle to actually losing bone? Are they really biting into the Ukrainian forces? And if they're having to use reserves and deploy reserves that they might otherwise want to have kept back well-rested, carry on training, keep them equipped for the counteroffensive. That is a difficult calculation to make. If you're starting to use those people and biting into, as I say, the bone and not just the muscle, then that might be the time to say, right, it served its purpose, it's now time to, to get out in good order. I'm not suggesting that's what's happening or even if they're, they're at that position yet, but these are the kind of calculations that will be going through the minds of uh, General Zeluzhny, the head of Ukraine's armed forces, Within, of course, within the political context, and guided and assisted by uh, by President Zelensky and the, and the international political appetite about what is what is acceptable to Ukraine in the in the longer fight. Thanks very much for that, Dom. Can we move on and talk a little bit about a story we've retopped the Telegraph's uh, Ukraine live blog with? It's actually a story coming from the Washington Post. I'll just read the first few lines and just get just to get your reaction on it. 
Dom, it says, Russia's clandestine Spetsnaz forces have been gutted by the war in Ukraine and will need years to rebuild, according to leaked intelligence documents seen by the Washington Post. Spetsnaz, these are special forces, usually reserved for high-risk advanced missions, but leaked US intelligence suggests that Russian commanders were over-reliant on the units and deployed them in direct combat, where they suffered massive numbers of dead and wounded. This story, we've only just covered it, so we don't have to go too much into it, but what, what are your initial reactions, Dom Nichols? Yeah, so firstly, I mean, this this came from the the leaked, the Pentagon Papers. Is, is that what we're calling them now? Pentagon Files, Pentagon Papers, the Discord Notes, I don't know, whatever. But that, that lot. So um, so we've got to, got to say we're not, we're not sure how the validity of them, but let's take them at face value. And if this report says that the US have assessed that Spetsnats have been used largely out of role and have suffered accordingly, that, that is of interest. Now, Again, there's not a direct comparison. You can't say Spetsnaz. Oh, that's the same as as UK Special Forces. That's the same as as um, you know Delta and SEAL Team Six, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's not there's no direct read across to JSOC and and, and UKSF and so on and so forth. However, however, the, you know, broadly that's what they that's what they are viewed as Spetsnaz being the term for informer. You know, countries that were part of the Warsaw Pact for their special forces. So it's it's a bit of a generic term. But if we're talking SF troops, then uh, then this is significant. And, and why is that? And it's, well, because they're generally SF troops, special forces troops, special ops forces troops. If you in, in the US parlance, a term I prefer to the to British SF. I mean, they are um, smaller in number because they are are much higher trained. I'm I'm, I'm looking at it through Western eyes here, but I, I guess it would be broadly comparable for um, for Russian Spetsnaz as well. I mean, generally slightly older. The average age, I think, in um, in UK and, and and US SOF, the Tier One SOF. I mean, you're, you're talking early 30s. These are seasoned, experienced soldiers who then go into the special ops group. M- many of them are married with kids. These are professional soldiers, professional fighters. They're not they're not just sort of in it for a few years to to, to have some fun, run around and, and leave. Not that there's anything anything wrong with that. But I'm saying they are they are more experienced soldiers. So you don't use them up on. On, on normal, quote unquote, what we in the British military very disparagingly might call Green Army missions, they use for black missions. And why is that? Because they are they are so they are so highly highly trained. They're very valuable. I mean, SF have they should be in our. I can't remember it was a while ago since I looked at the the principles of SF, but it's things like you know they have access to the highest level of intelligence. Although one bloke did want to turn around to me and say, where's the intelligence? I said, well, you're it, Sonny. <laughs> Go out and bloody find it. Anyway, access to the highest level of intelligence. They're used on the most sensitive missions and they get the biggest book deals. I may have made that last one up. But, you know, they are they are very highly trained and um, and you use them on regular missions, regular traditional infantry type missions at your peril because they 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 do not have the organic or especially they don't have the numbers they wouldn't be using the numbers that let's say an infantry brigade would have and they are trained to a slightly different degree so they're not going to be used to just docking into regular formations of of indirect fire and 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 all the rest of it they'd be they'd be used to using these kind of assets on very niche missions and so you know not only are they are they probably not best suited to some of the general infantry work but like I say, it takes years to train these people. It takes years for people to to become experienced enough to then realise that that's a path 
they want to take in the military. You don't just just turn up and, and say, right, I want to go and be a special forces soldier. And uh, yeah, because because I'm great at running, jumping, climbing trees. I mean, there's much more to it than that. It's mainly a mental approach that you want to take your soldiering to another level. That you, that, as I say, you're generally slightly older in life. You've got more to to lose, arguably, and yet you're still prepared to do it. So that getting somebody in that state of motivation, and then layering on the years of training is quite something. You end up with a with a very a very specialised beast at the end of it, which you do not want to use up just on on routine work. And if that's what they're doing here, if that's what Russia have done here, then it, it will take them years to to recover that kind of capability. Thank you very much for that, Dom. There's an update on the on on MIGs. Can you talk us through the MIGs? Yeah, MIGs. So fighters, Mikoyan Goyevich, I seem to remember the the manufacturer. So this is uh, so Germany has given approval to Poland's request to deliver five old German MiG-29 fighters to Ukraine. This is uh, according to local German media. German Defence Minister Boris Pistorius, he, he made a statement. He said, I welcome the fact that we in the federal government have reached this decision together. These these jets, they are they're a hangover basically from the old old East Germany East German military fleet, the air fleet from from East Germany, but you know they're still good, and now there's five of them, so that is that is to be welcomed. Boris Pistorius said, "Yes, yeah, so he said that bit. Reach the decision together. This shows you can rely on Germany." Like, hmm, okay, yeah, well done, well done, Boris. Yeah, you can rely on rely on Germany, and maybe a little bit, a little bit like the the comment about the US that they, the US will always do the right thing having explored every other opportunity. But, you know, it's it's a good thing that these MiGs are on the way. Thank you very much for that, Dom. I think we're just still waiting, Gareth. So, Dom, can we talk a little bit about this story? It was flagged to us by a listener yesterday, but it's it, we've since, since looked into it, that the Ukrainian MOD has created a website for locals in the occupied territories to sort of learn the basics and the principles of partisan activity. You've been looking into this this morning. Can you talk us through it? Yeah, so this website, it says it's been set up by the Special Ops Forces of the Ukrainian Army. They're calling themselves the Centre of National Resistance, and they're offering practical tips on how to resist. It's aimed at the parts of Ukraine that are under occupation at the moment by by Russia. And they're offering on this website, they're offering medical advice, nonviolent resistance, or how, you know, how to conduct, how to do nonviolent resistance, and, but up to and including things like how to neutralise tanks, how to carry out acts of sabotage, how to burn documents safely in a, in a hidden fashion without being discovered. It also, also gives advice for people who have been given a summons to serve in the Russian army. So those, those Ukrainian citizens that, are, that now find themselves under, under Russian control for a time, those that have been given summons to serve in the Russian army, this website suggests what what then to do, how to flag that to the Ukrainian government, and how to use the the state project that does exist already for for surrendering this project called "I Want to Live," and that, so to flag that, that who you are, where you are, and um, and it will it will talk about safe ways to to um, make it make it known to the Ukrainian forces that you are who you are and you want to uh, you want to surrender. Now, this website has also launched its own newspaper for residents of the temporarily occupied territories. Now, this and this offers latest news from the Ukrainian underground. It's called Gazeta Sprotiv, S P R O T I V, which which means resistance. It's the resistance newspaper. It says it's the it says it's the um the first underground national newspaper i mean do go and have a look we are not endorsing their advice we are not suggesting people should resist we are not endorsing any of the techniques that are contained there in the 
in the website, uh, on the website or in the newspaper. We are reporting its existence. We will continue to track it and try and talk to some of these people. It is a is a fascinating. It's very professional website i mean it's and it's quite clear about who they are and the, and the contact details and, and what have you so so do go and have a look and um i mean this area of resistance is is a fascinating a fascinating one when you think about the the stress and the strain of the individuals that that participate in it and i i, I just coincidentally happened last weekend to be watching the sound of music again obviously i mean it's a bit it's not that cool, but I've got a thing for the Baroness in the red dress on the balcony scene. But anyway, I digress. But if you think about the the bravery it takes to resist and the the, the risk of reprisals, and and in that film, the the sort of yeah, the von Trapp family, the, who you know, the Baron von Trapp doesn't want to, he's told to go and serve in the German military, and he takes takes the family over the hills to Switzerland. I mean, you know, it is extremely difficult to survive in that situation. That the who do you trust? The constant state of state of hypervigilance is going to take a take a toll on your mental and physical health. It is extremely brave to to decide to resist the the invader, even the smallest act of resistance. It all, it all takes a toll. It's a fascinating subject. I advise people to go and have a look at this website, have a look at some of the some of the the books on the SOE, the, the Special Operations Executive from the Second World War, the one by MRD Foote. I think I've, I've recommended it before, but MRD Foote's History of the SOE is an absolutely fascinating book, very, very digestible. Do go and have a look at that, but but think about the, the decisions these people must be making daily and the strain and the stress they're living under. But no, that's a fascinating website, and uh, and we'll try and get in touch with the, uh, with the people behind it. Thank you very much, Dom. Can I move to Gareth Caulfield, our senior technology reporter. Gareth, yesterday we spoke for a long time on your reporting around the Pentagon leaks. I think that's what we're calling them. We published the podcast in the middle of the afternoon, late afternoon yesterday, and I think less than an hour later, there was a rather huge up- update from the US. Can you talk us through what happened? Well, it's all, all as, we, as we said at the time, a rather fast-moving situation, which emerged very rapidly, in fact, after, after yesterday's podcast. The... Um do you believe it was a U.S. government official announced that uh, the chap we were discussing yesterday on the moniker OG, the Discord leaker, in fact is known, as, so the American authorities claim, may be known as Jack Tankzera, a member of the intelligence wing of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, aged 21, and he's been arrested on suspicion of leaking these Pentagon file documents onto Discord from where they were shared onwards onto other Discord servers and to ultimately other websites as well, including places like 4chan. Now this, I mean, we, we used the, uh, the term yesterday as a bit of a head-scratcher. This is, this just gets even more incomprehensible as time goes on. It turns out that the, the prime suspect here, Mr. Texera, is a 21-year-old Air National Guardsman, or in British parlance, he's an Air Force reservist, and he works for the, the State National Guard, which is their sort of territorial-based force. And it's really quite something that a 21-year-old has been fingered as the source of some of, of um, what some sources have described as the worst intelligence leaks since the Edward Snowden revelations a decade ago. The, the arrest itself was well publicised. I think there was something like five news helicopters circling Mr. Taxira's back garden, or rather the back garden of his parents' home with whom he, he lived. The New York Times was able to identify him and publicise his, his identity and confirm it with US officials immediately before the arrest. And that was quite the, uh, quite the journey for them because they, they attracted his identity down by looking at 
the leaked photos that he took. So just to just sort of recap for those who may not have been tuned in yesterday, um, the, the Discord leaker who've been who've been uh, issuing intelligence summaries about Ukraine to his internet friends on a chat app called Discord. He had been taking photographs of original documents using his mobile phone and posted them to his, his private chat server where they were eventually shared onwards and outwards. And in the background of some of these pictures were little, little identifying details. You know, his parents had a, I think it was a, a marble countertop with a very distinctive pattern in the stone. There were, there were features, the tiled floor. And the New York Times, together with investigators from Bellingcat, had compared those with photographs that Mr. Texera and his family members had taken of their own family home and had drawn a conclusion from those photos that these were one and the same location. That, that is to say, the uh, pseudonymous leaker OG was in fact Mr. Texera or somebody living at the Texera family home. Now, of course, being British, we, we have the presumption of innocence and we must clearly state that Mr. Texera has been arrested on suspicion of committing crimes. He has not been charged. He is presumed to be innocent, so we cannot state as a, as a hard fact by any means that he is concerned in any way with, commis- with the commission of offences for now. All we know is that he's been arrested and he's assisting the US authorities with their inquiries. But the questions that this raises are quite, really quite far-reaching. You know, for example, why is a 21-year-old US Air Force reservist... Um, why does he have access to such highly classified and sensitive materials? Now, during the course of these leaks, since this was sort of up to the, not quite up to the minute, certainly up to the weak intelligence material, containing combat estimates on the strength, the relative strengths of the Russians and Ukrainian forces, weapon stockpiles, potential foreign support or you know, international political analyses of who is, who is supporting Ukraine, who isn't supporting Ukraine, countries that are allegedly making out that they don't support Ukraine while shipping them arms, all that sort of thing. You know, this is real explosive, high-caliber stuff. So the, the notion that a 21-year-old Air Force reservist in Massachusetts was was able to just pick these documents out and, and, and you know, take them away and photograph them and put them on the Internet for his Internet buddies is, is still astonishing. Now, one of, the, one of the theories as to how this may have occurred is that Mr. Texera, so the theory goes may have had access to what they call a burn bag, which is uh, a main means of disposing of confidential documents. You, know, you, you print the document, it's used for its intended purpose, and when it's finished, it's placed in a designated secure sack that's then taken away and incinerated. And the theory goes that, and I emphasize this is a theory and nothing more at this stage, uh, if he had access to the burn bag, for example, if he was the, the person tasked with taking it away and placing it in the incinerator, that he may have been able to access the, uh, the contents of the burn bag and remove some of these intelligence summaries for his own consumption. As I say, that is a working theory. It, it so happens to fit the facts, but we don't have that many facts to go on. The other thing about Mr. Texera is that he is what the US Air Force calls a cyber journeyman, which is a, a strange job title, I have to confess, I've never encountered before. But on looking it up, it turns out that a cyber journeyman is what in civilian parlance we'd call a network architect, which is to say he, he builds and maintains computer networks. His job consists of everything from installing Wi-Fi routers to cabling to setting up software, you know, sort of reasonably low-level technical work, skilled in its own way, but not something that you would, you would expect to be associated with high-level security clearances. So, yeah, that in summary is where we're at with the, with the uh, Pentagon Papers leak, the, uh, the documents being spread on Discord and other 
internet chat channels. Um, so far, we know that Mr. Texera has been arrested and is currently in US government custody. Thank you very much for that update, Gareth. Can I ask both of you then? I mean, we talked about this for a while yesterday, about the implications of the the leaks and speculated as to where we think it come from and and the the motivation behind it. With this new information, does that change either of your assessments of of where we are? No, not really. I don't think it changes the assessment because the... I think we should assume that the vast majority, if not all of the information here, is legitimate. So move that to one side. You then look at the the means of which they were leaked. And the big concern for a, for a security agency, an intelligence agency for a government would be, well, well, is there somebody still out there? Are they on the payroll of a, of a foreign government? Are they, are they still collecting data to be released at, at some future date? Now, in this case, it looks as if that's not, that concern is, is, is diminished. It looks as if what's been taken here has already gone. It's been used, it seems more for kind of bragging rights, really, in the Discord channel. But it, it looks as if it, even if there was more stuff to come, more stuff that had been taken and not yet released, it's unlikely that it would, would now be released, partly because the, the, the alleged chief suspect is, is no longer near a computer, but also because I think it's it's done. Anyone else who might have access to this stuff is now. It's it's extremely unlikely that they'd be they'd be putting it out now, given the uh, given the heat involved. That's not to suggest that it might never come out if there is some more stuff out there. But I think I my feeling is, and I'm looking at Gareth here. My feeling is that this is probably we can snip this one off here. This is probably the end of this particular incident. Thanks, Tom. Anything from you, Gareth? Yes, I, I tend to, I think, agree with Dom on this one. I think we probably, for now, have seen the end of the ongoing flow of leaks. The material that's out there is now out there. That is, in effect, public domain information. Well, in fact, is public domain information. The, the prime suspect remains in police custody. He's not near a computer. And so far, none of the public information, the, the reporting from, from Bellingcat and the New York Times and the Washington Post and other you know, outlets that have been following this one very closely, None of the reporting so far suggests that anybody else was originating this information. Now, um, OG, the Discord leaker, had a, had a sort of private server, about 20-odd people who were seeing his material, and we know that some of those were, were capturing it and passing it on, you know, screenshotting it or saving it or whatever it was they, they happened to do. And it is that information circulating now, which I think is the probably the biggest cause of concern, certainly for the, uh, the Western intelligence agencies and security apparatus as a whole. Very good. Well, Gareth, can we just ask you one more thing? There was a big leak of Russian data a few weeks ago, again, just after you'd come on the podcast, actually. We'd always intended to go back to it and talk a little bit about the Vulcan files uncovered by a group of, of publishers, including The Guardian. What were your th- Could you just introduce us to what they were and your thoughts on them? Absolutely, David, sure. So the, the Vulcan files related to a Russian cybersecurity company called NTC Vulcan. And outwardly, they presented themselves as a, as a cybersecurity cult consultancy. Their, their concern was securing businesses against cyber attacks and the, all the online cyber badness that we all know and love. But it turned out that through the, the Volcan files, which is a trove of documents leaked by a disgruntled person somewhere in Russia, that NTC Volcan was actually quite tightly integrated with the Russian security services, if memory serves, it's the GRU. And the GRU has a a, a long and storied recent history of committing cyber intrusions against the West, um, mostly for intelligence and reconnaissance purposes. 
And it turned out through the, the Volcan files that the company had, in fact, been training the GRU's agents to carry out these hacks. They'd set up cyber ranges for them. I think one of the, the most standout parts of the leaked files was that the um, cyber range included simulations of railways. And in, in, in some of the training scenarios included um, methods on how you might hack a railway, how you might cause trains to collide, how you might fiddle with points and switches that move trains from one track to another to cause them to crash into one another or derail. You know, and this is this is the very definition of offensive cyber operations. This is real sort of hacking for hacking for military effect. And one of the things um, and these this cache of documents dated from the sort of mid 2010s or sort of five or six year period. And one of the things that immediately became apparent when these leaks were first reported, as you say David by the, by the Guardian and others is that the Russians had, in fact, hacked the Ukrainian state railways right at the beginning of the time period covered by these documents. So there is a case to be made here that the hacking training provided by NTC Volcan had been put into practice fairly sharply after it was delivered for the first time. That is to say that Russian cyber hackers had trained and practiced to carry out a railway hacking mission and had then done so in reality to the Ukrainian railways. Now, the ultimate effect of that hack wasn't big, uh, as we've sort of learned over the last year and a, year and a bit. Offensive cyber as a as a weapon of war, as a, as a military effector in the in the lingo, is not actually as as destructive or as harmful as as many had certainly in the West many had assumed. The the, the effects of the hack on the Ukrainian railways were certainly disruptive, but the effects were not long lived. Once the Russian hackers were shut out, once the GRU was sent packing. The Ukrainian railways were able to pick up and carry on from where they'd left off, which is a similar effect that we've seen with other big Russian hacks. There were power station hacks against Kiev in the mid 2010s, I want to say 2016, but again, I'm going from memory there. And, you know, it, it was an eye catching thing. They managed to black out the entire city for a duration of three hours. Now, <laughs> If your if your aim is to say you know look at the power of our hackers look at the you know the quality of the training that we can deliver with NTC Volcan and others uh, a three hour hack or knocking out the railways for a couple of days is you know it's it's not the biggest effect you could have it's not on the same scale as dropping a bomb or causing large numbers of casualties um, so yeah, that is the the NTC Volcan hacks and it, it does lift lift the lid uh, in quite a significant way on how Russia's cyber security industry has increasingly become co-opted into carrying out offensive cyber operations or assisting or enabling those offensive cyber operations against Ukraine and indeed against uh, the wider West. We have, we've seen research from particularly Talis, uh, the, the French defense conglomerates and others, suggesting that Russian hackers are now turning their attentions further afield into into Poland and the Baltics and, the, and other countries that are providing material support and assistance to Ukraine. And one of the questions that arises from these hacks, corrections, sorry, from these leaks, is that, oh, yes, but aren't we doing the same in the West? Don't we have a well-developed cyber-industrial complex that is assisting our hackers? To which the answer is not really. Most of the Western cybersecurity industry really does what it says on a tin, which is to say cybersecurity. Now, of course, the skills overlap, the ability to, on the know-how to commit intrusive cyber operations is inherent in the fact that if you know how to defend, you know how to attack. But it is, I mean, certainly in the UK, it is illegal to uh, commit an act of offensive hacking um, unless you are part of the government. That is to say, part of, for example, the National Cyber Force based up at Salisbury and not very many other places. Obviously, the agencies, GCHQ, MI5, MI6, 
Otherwise, there is no real legal framework through which a private sector organization can carry out offensive hacking. Now, the laws certainly differ in, in America, for example. There are examples, plenty of examples, in fact, out there of American cybersecurity companies being able to do more than British companies could do or other countries in Europe, for example. But that still stops a long way short of offensive cyber action. So I think the conclusion that we should be drawing from this is that the Russian cyber security industry may well have their own country's best interests in heart, but they certainly take it to a, to a much greater um, a much greater extent than we do here in the West. Thank you very much for that update, Gareth. It's really good to have you back on, and uh, especially two days in a row. Really good to hear your thoughts. Dom Nichols, final updates, and then we'll go to our final thoughts. Well, sorry, my final my final update is my is my final thought. I just draw your attention to some diplomacy happening in and around China. So. German Foreign Minister Alena Baerbock is in China now. She's uh, meeting her her opposite number. And she said at a press conference, no other country has more influence on Russia than China and, and urged the Russian aggressor to stop the war. And she said, quote, it is good that China has signaled its commitment to a solution. But I have to say, frankly, that I wonder why the Chinese position so far does not include a call on the aggressor, Russia, to stop the war, unquote. I mean, you know, quite punchy quite punchy comments when you're when you're over there well anywhere really but uh, at that level but when you're hosted by by china I mean, she's known to be pretty um you know pretty forthright in these in these views i think she and um and boris pistorius the defense minister they're they're kind of they're the the, the, the tough guys if you like in uh, german politics at the moment so she doesn't doesn't pull her punches now at a joint press conference so queen gan who's her opposite number that's china's foreign minister he said Regarding the quote, regarding the export of military items, China adopts a prudent and responsible attitude. Uh, He said China will not provide weapons to relevant parties of the conflict and manage and control the exports of dual use items in accordance with laws and regulations, unquote. Again, very clear from China. Now, whether whether it's true, whether you believe it, that's one thing. But I mean, if they go back on those words, uh, that would be quite significant. Now, he's, he's painted it in that in that way. The European Union foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, he has said today in a statement he was going to visit China, but he's got COVID apparently. So he said in a statement today, it would be difficult, if not impossible, for Europe to trust China if it did not try to find a political solution to the, well, he says, the Ukraine crisis. I prefer to call it a war, but he says the Ukraine crisis is doing well up to there. So, you know, some quite a bit of heat here from the, from the Europeans around and in China. And we should just say that the defence ministers of of China and Russia. So Chinese Defence Minister Li Shangfu and uh, Sergei Shoigu, Russia's Defence Minister, they are going to meet this uh, in the next few days to discuss global and regional security at talks that start, I think start Sunday, Sunday to Wednesday or Sunday, Tuesday, something like that. But early part of next week, they're getting together. So, you know, we're going to hear more around China. We're going to see the, the, the sort of the focus is going on there on the diplomatic front. But I thought they were really quite... Um, quite bold statements there from from Alina Baerbock and it's uh, it's good to see. Absolutely. Just one thing to add there, Dom, while we've been speaking, we've had an update to the blog on a Chinese issue as well, which is China's accused Poland of meddling in its affairs after the Polish Prime Minister, Mateusz Morawiecki, said during a speech at the Atlantic Council think tank in Washington that if Ukraine is defeated in its war with Russia, China may decide 
to invade Taiwan shortly afterwards. The Chinese have, have really gone for him and have said, quote, any attempt to use the Ukraine issue as a pretext to insinuate a relationship with the Taiwan issue is political manipulation with ulterior motives, mindless trampling on the principle of respect for national sovereignty and territorial integrity and flagrant interference in China's internal affairs. We've said a few times on this podcast that the the, the Taiwan issue for China is always in, is, is in the forefront of their strategic mind. So it's interesting to see their reaction if, uh, if other people make that point as well. So I just thought I'd add that because that's, that's come out as, as we've been speaking. Gareth, can I come to you for your very final thought as our, as our guest? You've been on the podcast twice this week with a lot of updates. How would you sum up what we've seen over the past week? A lot of people have learned an awful lot about, <laughs> about say, online subcultures. I think a lot of people have learned a lot about how youngish people live their lives online and how certain influences, and if, if it is just you know, the desire to show off to your mates can actually result in some extremely harmful and damaging outcomes. I mean, fundamentally, the Discord leaker, the Pentagon files, comes from the same motivation that, that spurs us on to want to win an argument in the pub. But the trouble is, you're not doing it in the pub, you're doing it online, where those files can exist potentially forever and are immediately out of your control the moment you share them. So, um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting ride for uh, young Mr Tixera from here on in. Thank you, Dom and Gareth. Now, here's our special report on the state of Poland's armed forces with our video comment editor, Stephen Edgington. Poland is arming. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Warsaw has been investing billions in new tanks, weaponry, cyber defence and manpower. March! By 2035... Poland hopes to double the size of its armed forces to 300,000 troops. There is even talk of the country becoming a major military power in Europe. My name is Stephen Edgington and I'm a reporter from the Daily Telegraph. I'll be travelling across Poland to try and understand whether the country is ready for war. I began in the city of Olsztyn, three hours north of Warsaw, where a major army recruitment fair was taking place. Do you think Poland is ready for war? Yes, definitely yes. We are ready and we are doing everything to avoid it. This is Michael, a colonel in the 6th Airborne Brigade. We are working hard to avoid this conflict, but if any of our uh, enemies would try to fight with us, we are ready. Is Poland becoming a new military superpower in Europe? From the original point of view, I would say yes. In the eastern flank of NATO region, we are one of the main forces. So we are not a global uh, power. But in this specific uh, region, the northern part of the eastern flank of NATO, Baltic Sea region, I would say yes. So can you tell us a little bit about what you do here for the Polish military? Okay, so as you probably know, there's cyber threats all over the world. General Karol Moldena, Polish Cyber Command. It is known that for the last 10 years, Russia has been constantly conducting cyber information and hybrid operations just to, you know, divide the world or we can say make us weaker. And of course we fought and we still see the presence of the malicious actors trying to interact with our networks, military networks, but also networks uh, from the critical infrastructure, for example. And that's the reason there was a decision made in 2019 that in Poland we should establish cyber forces. So your unit is relatively new. 
Do you see it as do you see this as being part of Poland's wider strategy to prepare for war with Russia if this if this is an eventuality in the future? So you know I can say that from Polish perspective and for Polish cybersecurity perspective we can call it I I I really believe that Poland is a NATO frontline of battle in cyberspace. So so there is lots huge amount of uh, uh, attacks, attempts of attacks to not only military networks but critical infrastructure. In order to enlist hundreds of thousands of new recruits into the Polish army, the authorities cannot solely rely on masculine displays of adventurism and warfare. They must tap into a willingness to fight for their sovereignty. Such patriotism may be running short in the West, but does it still exist in Eastern Europe? I asked just that to some of those here at the Army Recruitment Fair. So do you think that young people in Poland are patriotic? Many people not uh, raised in a patriotic value in his uh, family. But you are? Yes, I am. Yes. And when I young boy. You're prepared to die for your country? Uh, yes, of course. I'm, I'm patriotic. I love my country and every single matter when I step. Do you think that Polish young people are patriotic? Yes, absolutely. I can see a patriotic boom right now uh, because of the fact of the Russian invasion. I think from my point of view, nothing unites people more than the common enemy. So you think that Polish uh, people are prepared to die for their country? Absolutely, yes. We proved that during our history and I think it's uh, valid in modern days. Yes, absolutely. After eating some soup in the mess tent, we witnessed some 600 fresh territorial recruits get sworn into the army. Poland has perhaps done more than any country to support Ukraine, both militarily and in terms of humanitarian aid. I visited some former members of the Polish Special Forces at a site just outside of Warsaw to witness their loading up of yet more kit ready to be driven to Ukraine. So what is happening here today? Since the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've been supporting Ukraine. Michael Goras of the Polish National Foundation. Over 8 million Ukrainians have crossed the border into Poland. Consequently, we too want this conflict, which Putin started, to end on the ground there. Hence the full commitment, not only financially, but also hard work. Today, we are going there once again to be together with the Ukrainians on the ground. By 2035, Poland plans to spend £85 billion on weapons, whilst this year's defence budget was a record £18 billion. To discuss Poland's rapid increase in military spending, I sat down with the country's former finance minister. I started by asking Tadeszu Kozinski to give me an idea of how much money Poland was now investing in the military as a percentage of GDP. 
Well, we're going up to nearly 4% of our GDP. So, so we, we had uh, for last year's, uh, last few years, uh, about 2%, and now we're uh, ramping up to 4%. And, uh, and even uh, at one stage, uh, we're probably forecasting it will be nearly 5% of our GDP. And how does that compare to other European countries? Fourteen months ago, I was the Minister of Finance, and uh, in the uh, ECOFIN monthly meetings I had with all the ministers of finance in Europe, I was saying that we should have a golden rule for uh, uh, increasing uh, public debt uh, for military uh, uh, purchases, and all the other ministers of finance were saying, no, 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 we don't, uh, we can't do that, but we can have a golden rule for uh, for the green economy. Um, they didn't appreciate really what was happening in the world. So, so, so I was saying that if, if the whole of Europe was a jigsaw puzzle and I could take the piece that's Poland and put it on the western side of Portugal, I'd also probably be talking about uh, the green uh, uh, economy. Uh, but we are where we are and we have to spend money to, uh, uh, to, to defend ourselves and, uh, and to make sure that uh, and nobody has some uh, silly ideas about attacking Poland. But the money we're spending is really on behalf of the whole of Europe. Now, your own family has been involved in fighting Russians for over a century. Do you see this as, for, for you personally and for Poland, this war in Ukraine as a continuation of that history of fighting Russia? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's not just 100 years because we're talking about uh, the, the First World War and Second World War, but uh, my, my great-great-grandfather was in the January uh, uh, uprising and uh, they lost all their uh, um, uh, assets and uh, uh, they, were, they were very lucky not to have been sent to Siberia sort of, and, what's it, 200 years ago. So, but this is, so this was against the Tsar? That's right. So, so nothing's really changed, whether it's the Tsar, whether it's uh, the communist regime. It's a totally different mentality. They're, they're imperialists and uh, uh, that's, uh, that hasn't changed. Nothing's going to change. Poland's military expansion must be thought of within the context of the nation's history. People here still remember when Poland suffered under communist rule and memories of Poland's horrific 20th century in which the country faced numerous invasions are still vivid in the minds of many Poles. Back in London, I spoke to the director of the National Army Museum, Justin Maciejewski, who explained Poland's historic role as the defender of Europe's borders. I mean, Poland's one of Europe's great powers and, and its history goes right the way back to the 10th century. There have been moments in history where Poland has stood on the front line of Christendom, if you like, in its, in its traditional sense of, of Europe, whether it was against the Tatars in the 14th and 15th century or against the Ottoman Turks when they were at the gates of Vienna in 1683 or indeed in 1919-1920 when the Polish fought uh, against the, the Bolsheviks, what became the Soviet Union, to prevent, if you like, the communist revolution sweeping across Europe. And Poland won that war. And of course, here we see a Poland again today standing on the front line of, of freedom in Europe uh, in its stand uh, with Ukraine and uh, obviously uh, against Putin's Russia. And I think the rearmament of Poland that we're seeing today is, is very much in the context of that deep history of Poland's role as a bastion uh, of Europe. Putin's invasion of Ukraine comes just 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet bloc. I sat down with Marcin Zizetsky from the Polish National Foundation and asked how real the threat from Russia is to Poland. We lived in a sense of security, of well-being, of being able to plan what will happen to our children, how they will develop, finish school, what kind of job they will get. 
Now we have to think in terms such as whether the world in which our children will grow up in, will that world be a world of war? This is not an exaggeration on our part, because it has long been known de facto that the Russians will strike. The question is, in which direction? Poland's membership of NATO makes a Russian invasion less likely. However, the Poles are certainly taking no risks. And in a new age of war in Europe, other countries may want to follow Warsaw's lead to prepare themselves for every eventuality. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.